Many years ago, uh, Kathy and I were much younger than we are now. Uh, our daughter Bethany was, I didn't ask permission, but I don't think this matters this morning. Our daughter Bethany, I think she was less than five. And uh, Bethany was not blessed with the best of health when she was little, had numerous problems. And one of the recurring ones when she was very little uh, was ear infections. And so there was a certain Friday, we were at the doctor for the same thing. Her ears were infected again. He looked at them and these are really bad. And, and basically she needs surgery. You've got to get those little tubes put in so they can drain and she doesn't get these or lose her hearing for the future. So we said, you know, okay, we get it. So that was Friday. We went to church. Sunday. So we had read our Bibles. And we knew that James 5 said, if you're sick, call for the elders and have them pray for the sick one and they'll be healed. So the elders of New Covenant Fellowship laid their hands on little Bethany and prayed for her before service. So we went home that day from church, went to the doctor Monday morning to see if we, we got to schedule surgery. And he said, well, well, not only is the left ear not infected anymore, there's no problem with it at, at all. It look, actually looks better than the other one that, that wasn't infected. So we concluded, uh, we, the elders prayed, uh, God answered and healed Bethany's ears. And it's like, makes sense now. So I'm not divulging my daughter's age, but that was decades ago. Multiple decades. And uh, since then, I've been a part, I've been an elder in three churches since then. So as an elder in three different churches from big to smallish to small, ours, uh, I've been a part of elders praying for the sick many, many, many times. And here's my experience since Bethany's. There's not one occurrence in which in any of the three churches I've been a part of, the elders prayed for the sick, the physically sick, and with any clarity at all, the sick person was healed from the prayers of the elders. Haven't seen it once since. That's when we go, oh. What do you make of that? Thank you. What, what do we make of that? We did what the Bible said. And our expectation was not met. So where's the beef? What went wrong? Here's some options. Uh, do the elders lack faith? And, I, and I, if I remember, I'll qualify faith here in a little bit because we want to be clear on what faith is and what faith is not. So did the elders lack faith? So you know, you got lousy elders, not only here, but at two other big churches in Topeka. Lousy elders because they did what James 5 said, God didn't heal. Must be lack of faith on the elders. Or does the person lack faith? And that's not the issue that's raised in James 5. But other times people will say, well, the person lacks faith. That's why they're not healed. Does the person have a secret sin that's holding them hostage to their ailment? And that's actually a biblical thing. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, about the time we wind down. That's a biblical thing. Is that the issue? They've got a sin. They haven't repented. And so this is God's discipline on them. Or here's a thought, have we misunderstood the text? Have we misunderstood the scripture? James 5 is a passage that appears simple and straightforward on one hand, and yet in practice can appear quite frustrating. 
The elders of Lion Lamb Church, along with a number of other young men, leaders in the church, specifically of home groups, have been working through a book on leadership in the local church, and James 5 was our last discussion. It was a great discussion because we not only agreed that the author of the book we've been reading did a lousy job on this passage, basically continuing to foist an unbiblical expectation on people, that was big, but the discussion really centered around this thing that uh, lots of us have experience in this arena and we don't see direct physical healing with, with any regularity, anything like that, according to James 5. We don't see it. There's a frustration. There appears to be a double-mindedness related to this. It was a great discussion. And out of that uh, is why we're doing this teaching this morning. So this is a one-off. Next week will be a one-off before we get into the fall uh, season and series. And so let, let me say before, we're going to look at James 5. That's where we're going to park this morning out of that discussion. Before we get there, you may say I'm not sick and I'm not an elder. It doesn't apply to me. And I, and I would say, uh, put on your back shelf. Listen, don't fall asleep anyway. Put on your back shelf. This may be something you need at a future time. So if it doesn't apply right now, that's okay, but it might in the future. And you, or you simply might want to be able to help someone else who's struggling or who's read James 5 and says, you know, I don't get it. So, so if the passage isn't inherently of interest to you this morning, don't write it off. Uh, stay checked in and see if God doesn't use it in the future. And this, this is a bit of a Bible study. This may be boring. This isn't the way I normally teach, but this is going to be a little bit of a Bible study. And here's why. Um, if you, uh, when you study Scripture, uh, the Scripture says something. When you read your Bible, whatever your translation is, it says something. And so when we start with a Scripture in any kind of study, we say, what does the text say? What are the words in the text? And that doesn't matter if you're in the ESV or the King James or if you're in the Hebrew or the Greek. The first question is, what does the text say? What does it say? The second one actually becomes more meaningful. What does the text mean? What does the text mean? And guys, there's lots of texts in Scripture that are disputed as to what they mean by good and godly people who are all orthodox in the faith but don't agree on what a certain passage of scripture means so when we're in a text and that's a little bit true here of James 5 as you'll see in a minute when we're in a text that has disputed understandings we want to do our best we want to do our homework we want to look up the Greek or the Hebrew whatever that is we want to read others who have studied and who are adept in scriptures handling scriptures and read what they've said and we want to come with our own best understanding and because here's part of the thing uh, we don't have faith in faith. I guess I'll just say this now. Biblical faith is not what you work up. And it's not, you're not the cowardly lion in the, lion, in the Wizard of Oz saying, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. That's not faith. Biblical faith is simply you taking God at his word. So Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing God's word. How do I get faith? I read God's word. I hear God's word. I take God's word in. Hebrews 11 says, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things I haven't seen. So it's not based on the fact that I can put my hand on something and say this is reality. Faith is, I know who God is, I know what God has said about a certain thing, and I believe God. That's biblical faith. 
I trust God and I trust what God has said. So that's biblical faith. We're, we don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in believism. Faith is our trusting, believing response to God who can't lie and to what he has said or what he's promised. So guys, you know, as you study through scripture, you'll see that the prayers you can count on God answering are prayers made according to God's word and God's will. He will do what he says. If we're doing what we understand scripture to say and we're not getting the result we thought God was promising, we've probably misunderstood the text because God answers our prayer according to his will. If he's spoken in the Bible, and it's clear, this is what does it mean? Not just what does it say? What does it mean? Here's an example. If Jesus says, ask anything in my name, can we trust that statement? And, and uh, further, not just trust the statement, can we take that statement without any qualification? You cannot. You cannot for this reason. Ask anything. Can I ask God to act contrary to his will? I can't. Matter of fact, if I read other verses about prayer in the New Testament, I see that that gets qualified. Ask anything in my name and it'll be done for you. Is that unqualified? Well, in a sense it is. In another sense, it's not. So if I say, and this is the way a lot of Christians pray, in Jesus' name. Give me what I want in Jesus' name. Do this in Jesus' name. That's not what the text means, and that's not the promise. What does in Jesus' name mean? It means as Jesus would pray. It means that when I pray, it's as if Jesus assigned the check and I'm filling in the amount. I'm not making something up. So we want it, we want, So if I say, well, I prayed in Jesus' name and God didn't answer, so God's lying and he's not to be trusted, I say no. I misunderstood what he meant. I need to qualify it the way scripture qualifies it. And I think that's what we want to do with James 5. So my hope this morning, after we've looked at James 5 together, is not that any of us don't have a hope, just our own hope, that God would heal us or heal someone else physically. That's not what we're, we're trying to do. What we are trying to do is this. Lord, when we apply this passage, what are we doing what are you doing? And so what should our expectation be? What might that look like? So that we are praying with faith according to your word. That's what we want to do. Because when we do that, we know God's going to hear his word. We know we're praying according to faith. We can count on God answering. And all of a sudden you realize I'm freed from all kinds of misunderstanding, disappointments, and confusion. That's what we want to do out of James 5 this morning. Okay, so this is a disputed passage. I'll put it that way. Though there's a traditional view, which I'll highlight first. <clears throat> Excuse me. We hold our own views loosely enough that if we find out we're wrong in the future, we can say, okay, I see it. Okay. So if you have your Bibles, this is James 5, verses 13 through 18. Sorry for the lengthy introduction. <clears throat> I'm going to read from the ESV. And if you happen to use a pew Bible, right at the very back, uh, page 1013. So James says in this chapter, this passage, is anyone among you suffering let him pray you remember in james 1 I've, i go through life i have trials i have periods of suffering what do i do when life's hard well james says we'll pray take that to god pray about it uh, take it to jesus in prayer i'm suffering I'm, I'm hurting i'm trying to figure things out pray is anyone cheerful let him sing praise i i'm so i feel blessed i feel cheerful i'm thanking god 
realize in either situation I'm suffering or I'm really doing well, my orientation is to God. I'm praying about the time I'm suffering, but I'm thanking Him. I'm praising Him for those blue lights, green lights, blue skies. Okay, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And this is, the, this is the key area of our passage. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, that's a key phrase, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So keying in on that prayer of faith, James gives us this Old Testament example of exactly that, verses 17 and 18. He says, you know what? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So when you read about Elijah, don't think about a guy who calls fire down from heaven. Think of a guy that's just like you. Elijah has a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James says, pray in faith, God will answer. And he says, by the way, here's an example. That's exactly what Elijah did. It wasn't that Elijah was this powerful person. He prayed, and God answered the prayer. So the prayer of faith. So here's the traditional, what I'm calling the traditional majority view of understanding the, the portion of this passage directly speaking to sick, prayer, and healing. This passage is about a person who is physically sick, ill, or weak. When the elders of the church pray for this physical malady, God heals them and they're restored physically. So it's all about physical sickness, disease, malady, something along that line. So here are the rationale. By the way, I hope you have a study sheet. These are all on there for you. The first rationale is in verse 14, the Greek term translated sick. This is, and all of my references here, this is out of the ESV. Although I will tell you, no matter which of the English translations you look at in this passage, they're all about the same. There's very, very little difference of the way those translations have been made. The Greek term translated in verse 14, sick, is usually translated sick or ill, physical sickness, illness, malady, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Gospels as it is here in James 5. So the Greek term translated sick in James 5 is generally the way it's translated in the Gospels. That's one thing. The second is this, <clears throat> excuse me, guys. <clears throat> the second is the possibility that the person is unable to move about freely. Look at uh, verse 14. So the sick person is going to call for, for the elders of the church and they'll pray. So they've got to call for the elders. So maybe they're so physically compromised they can't go to the elders, so the elders must go to them. They're compromised physically, they can't get there, the elders need to go to them. Third one is this, there's a similar usage in Mark's gospel, Mark 6.13. That verse says, the disciples cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So, <clears throat> excuse me just like James 5 the disciples anointed someone who was sick now I'll just tell you the term for sick used in Mark is not the same one that's used in James the one in Mark is sick an invalid there's no question about this this is someone who's physically compromised they were anointed with oil it's the only time you'll see this in the gospels as far as the disciples doing any healings the singular singular use of oil anointing oil and they and they get better 
So it's clear. The disciples prayed and anointed for someone who is physically sick and they got well. That sounds like James 5. The fourth one is this, the need to be raised up. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save, will heal or restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The Lord will physically, that's the implication, will raise that sick person up. They're, they're on their sick bed lying down, so to speak. Nope, they've been prayed for, they're healed and they're able to physically rise again. That language is similar to the use of the same word in Matthew 9, 6, a paralyzed man is made well, is able to get up. Mark 1.31, uh, Peter's sick mother-in-law is raised up. She's able to serve them. And then in Acts 3.7, uh, Peter and John confront a man who can't walk, and he is raised up. He's able to walk. So similar uh, word, similar use there. And then five, which is not insignificant. Most translators and most commentaries hold to this view, and that is the way, that's why you see uh, your translation uh, written the way it is with the term sick that we usually associate with a physical malady. So th those are the positive reasons for the historic or the traditional view. Now here, here are some of the problems with this view. Generally, those prayed for by elders of local churches are not healed, are not healed. This is indisputable. And it doesn't matter if you talk to people in other churches, denominations, the sick, the elders who pray, doesn't matter if you look at history, this is the norm. That's the norm. So unless all these people in all these times, in all these places, simply lack faith, something's amiss, okay? It's not the norm. Second, if this passage was even relatively speaking, unconditional promise regarding healing for physical maladies when elders of the church pray for a sick person, what would you see in the local church? You wouldn't see sick people. You wouldn't see diseased people. You wouldn't see, you would not only not see sick people, you wouldn't see people dying of disease or sickness. It wouldn't happen because the elders prayed and God healed them. And again, that's not reality. That's not what you see, not only now and here, but historically or globally. Third, when we hold to this view with those things as a given, with, with history and our own knowledge and experience as a given, it leads towards a kind of double-mindedness. And what does James say about double-mindedness and prayer? James 1, if you lack wisdom, ask God, because he's generous, he'll give you. You need wisdom, God's good for it, he'll give it to you. But, James says, you got to ask with faith, you can't be double-minded. So what he says in one, he's not taken away in chapter five. You got to pray with faith, he says. And yet, and I'll just tell you this personally, we've prayed for a lot of people. And I'm going in saying, I, God can do whatever he wants. And I know he can do whatever. And there's no problem. If God wants to heal someone, no problem at all. And yet, as you go in to pray for someone and you're asking God to physically heal them, and your expectation is kind of like, and, and I have no idea what you're going to do, Lord. You know, and you try and be honest as you pray, too. Well, maybe that's a lack of faith. Or maybe it's a misunderstanding of the text. Uh, this is, again, in a letter that warns two times against being double-minded. And it informs us in chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, that faith is required for God to answer our prayers. He could if he wanted to, but he's not binding himself to a prayer that's not associated with faith. That's the thing. This understanding, the traditional majority view, encourages both disappointment and a detachment from reality, double-mindedness. 
We say the text means God will heal physically when the elders pray, but we're not at all surprised when he doesn't. There's both disappointment and also a very unhealthy dynamic in our own thought processes. And guys, here's the thing. Christians should have the soundest mind of any group on the planet. Jesus says, I'm truth. Scripture claims for itself as God's word to be truth. Our minds should be formed by the truth. We should be able to look reality in the face and say we know what's true and we know what isn't true. We're connected to the God of truth. We have the word of truth. We're good with this. So if, we're, if, if something's amiss, it's not God's word. His word's perfect. Something's going on with our understanding. Here's an example, and you can laugh if you want. And it doesn't, I'm not sure how great an example this is. Um, and it's not quite apples to apples, but you'll get the picture. So when I was a young believer, I think this was the summer of 1977. I was a Christian less than a year. And I was working, I was employed, school is out, I'm employed, I'm earning money, and there's a stereo receiver I've been looking at, I've done my homework, I've saved my money, I'm ready to go down and buy it. So I do, on a given day. I, I go and I buy my receiver. I, I go up to my brother's bedroom where we had all our stereo gear. And I plug in the stereo receiver. This was, this was a moment, right? This was a moment. And so I turn it on. And this was back, this was the tuner, you know, it wasn't digital, you turned the handle. So the lights come on, and my Kenwood is lit up, and there's just this moment of glory. And as suddenly as it comes, it goes. Gary, you would appreciate this. The light just bloops, and it's gone, and it's off. And guys, I, I mean, this sounds stupid, I know. But I can't describe the disappointment and the bewilderment and the confusion of what had just happened. I'm serious. And I felt like Charlie Brown. I had killed the Christmas tree. I turned on the stereo. It's there and then it's not. And I'm thinking, what? How did I do this? How did I break this? But guys, I'd read my Bible, even though I was a new believer. And I don't castigate my charismatic brothers when I say this story. All my early faith and teaching was in charismatic circles for the first four or five years. Great people, love the people. But I knew if somebody gets sick, you put your hands on them and you pray for them and God's bound to heal them. And what's good for a person is certainly good for a stereo receiver. <laughs> I put my hands <laughs> on that receiver <laughs> and I prayed in Jesus' name for that receiver to be healed. And then I prayed again. <laughs> Did it again. <laughs> No healing, no resurrection. Forgot the oil. Yeah, forgot the oil. <laughs> we'll talk about the oil. Yeah, we'll talk about the oil. I wonder what that would have done. <laughs> so, so I don't know what else to do. So I take it back to CMC Stereo, and, and I tell them, the thing doesn't work. you know. And they, they put it on their bench, and they, they came out, and they told me, this has a dead short from the factory, and you need a new one, and here it is. And so they gave me a new one, and it worked splendidly for me for many years. Now, my expectation for my prayer for my stereo wasn't met. Guys, could God have healed my stereo? Absolutely. He absolutely could have. But he didn't. And really, in God's gracious economy, what I needed was a new receiver anyway. And they needed to take it back and somebody else needed to fix it or, or whatever. And before we, we proceed, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page about this, this element of prayer. 
This is not specifically a message about prayer, which would be much bigger. It's a much bigger topic because we're really just talking about this, this way of praying when something's amiss in a person's life. And we're, I'm going to redefine what I think the passage means here in a second. But when we pray, we're remembering that God is a good father. God can't love you more than he loves you. God doesn't wish better for you than he's giving you in this life or the life to come. Jesus is an adequate Savior, and by adequate I mean he's everything and all that he should be and could be. And the Holy Spirit has nothing that stops him from accomplishing the Father and the Son's will. You don't stop the Father and the Son's will, and neither do I. When we pray, we can entrust ourselves fully to God who loves us, Jesus who died for us and was raised for us, and the Spirit who seals and keeps us. Okay, so whatever else, when you pray or I pray, and I think I'm praying God's will and God's word, and I don't get my expectation, you know what I still know? My Father loves me. Jesus died for me, rose for me. He's in me, and I'm in him. He's mine, and I'm his. And the Spirit is still here, accomplishing God's will in my life. None of that has changed based on my confusion, my disappointment, anything else. That's all still the same. It's eternally true. So here's another way of reading James 5. And this is the version I believe is meant to be understood. So what does the text say? What does it mean? And by the way, I'll, I'll mention, I think on your study sheet, it has the, uh, the gentleman that I'm going to quote later. So a lot of this came in, in the leader's discussion about this passage. A lot of it came from a couple of different um, theological journal articles, one of which I'll mention in a little bit. So here's the alternative view. The passage is primarily about anyone who is depleted spiritually or emotionally or physically. They're discouraged. They're worn out. They're depressed. They're anxious. In one way or another, it doesn't have to be physical, they are depleted. They're down. Who, when prayed for by the elders, are raised up through the spiritual and emotional encouragement they receive whether or not any physical illness or healing is needed or occurs, that they will be raised up spiritually and emotionally. They will get a benefit through prayer that they didn't have before. Whether or not there's any issue related to a physical illness, either in their need or in what God provides. And here's the rationale for this understanding. This is what I mean about the Bible study element here. Verse 14. We set on a supportive point for the traditional majority view that the term you read in your translation, English translation, sick, is translated that way in the Gospels routinely. So that was, a, that was a point for the traditional view. But here's the flip side of that. If you read the epistles, that same Greek word can be translated in numerous different ways. So for instance, here's sort of some of the breadth of the way it gets translated. It's ostheneo, it's to be weak. Now it can be, it mean infirm physically, but also deficient in strength, inefficient, weak in faith, doubting, hesitating, unsettled, timid, deficient in authority, dignity or power, contemptible, afflicted, distressed, needy. That, that's the breadth of the, the interpretive translation that you see in this Greek word, ostheneo, is translated in a variety of ways to the English. So if you look at verse 15, 
The ESV again says sick, like the other English translations, but, but this is not the same word. This is a different word. Uh, this word is komno, and komno means tired from exertion, wearied from labor, discouraged. So if we took the word being translated sick in 14, and if we made it consistent with the word being used in 15, we wouldn't say physically ill, we'd say this person is worn out. They are tired. They're depressed, they've been anxious, they've been carrying a load, you know what, they are just worn out and down. And they need something, but it may have nothing to do with a physical malady or sickness or ailment. So if we translate those words so that they match, as I believe they should, then this isn't specifically talking about someone who's physically sick. It's not a promise that the one who's physically sick will be healed efficiently through the elder's prayer. Verse, uh, third time, third reason for this non-traditional understanding. If the correct understanding of James 5 is that the church elders pray for the tired, discouraged, despondent, worn out among the church family, and they're saved from grief or despair, they're raised up spiritually and emotionally, then the passage and our experience meet and make sense, and there's no double-mindedness. And in fact, this is what you'd say routinely, this is what elders see, and routinely, this is what people who are prayed for, who are physically sick, prayed for by elders, this is what they'll tell you also. I'm just encouraged. I'm encouraged that they came and prayed for me. I do feel better. I feel lifted up. Whether there's been anything physically restored or not, that is the consistent outcome of the elders praying for people who have been sick. And if we describe this this way, um, James opens and closes on the themes of trials and suffering and life's difficulties. You, not all of us have experienced this, but many have experienced this. If you're physically sick for a long time, or if you've been anxious, depressed, despondent, overworked, fatigued for a long time, you know what it tends to breed? A feeling of isolation. I'm in it by myself and no one knows. And there's no help. And it's just me. And I'm worn out and I'm in a dark place and nothing and no one knows, and this is just the way it is. Suffering often gives us a sense of isolation. But if I'm suffering, and just for, for the moment, just forget physical, physical issues, just I'm suffering, I'm worn out, I'm despondent. If someone, or someones, come up and say, hey, we would love to pray for you, you know what that person then knows? I'm not isolated, I'm not alone, I'm not by myself. Not only is God with me, I'm his, I'm a believer, God is with me, but God's people have come around me and they've prayed for me and they've joined me in my suffering and my isolation. I don't feel isolated anymore. Guess what? I feel raised up spiritually and emotionally. I feel healed in that sense that someone has entered my suffering and it's not me alone in a dark corner. God's with me and others in the body of Christ are with me as well. That's routinely the outcome when elders pray for those who are physically sick. But guys, it doesn't need to be limited to that. Depression, fatigue, anxiety can stifle our physical stamina and render us as incapacitated as if we had a physical malady, the flu or a disease or anything else. 
Here's another supportive element. If Turn here if you want or just look this up later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This isn't, as, this isn't quite apples to apples with James, but it's very similar in its theme and its application. So the Apostle Paul, as he's winding down in his first letter to the Thessalonians, says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, so probably we're talking about the elders and the deacons, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Now, guys, in a local church, if someone needs admonishment, do you know who's normally giving it? The elders. The church leaders are admonishing. And if we put them in the driver's seat in admonishing the idle or the unruly, the next phrase says, encourage the faint-hearted. And the next phrase is, help the weak. And you know what? Sounds a lot like James 5, doesn't it? He's not bringing in the element of physical sickness. He's saying if someone's idle, they're basically they're being lazy. This is an issue in that church, and it's brought up in the second letter. They're being lazy. Hey, you go tell them. Call them up short. Hey, guys, this isn't okay. But if someone's faint-hearted or weak, they need encouragement and they need help. Now, this certainly can apply to any of us, right? And from James 5... Can any of us individually or corporately go and pray for somebody that's sick or worn out or depressed or anxious? Absolutely. It's just that in both of these passages especially, you see the leaders of the local church tied to this thought of the faint-hearted and the weak being served by the leaders of the church. It's very much the same thought. Like James 5, Paul connects the leaders of the local church in the same passage as admonition to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Very similar theme. The epistle from James began by exhorting us to choose joy in the midst of trials. That's James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers. And it winds down on this similar note. There is encouragement and strength to be found in the midst of suffering and trials, physical or otherwise, notably when church leaders come alongside the suffering one to join them and to pray for them. Now, this is a minor position, and I've got a lot of commentaries, and I've looked at a lot of commentaries. I can tell you this is, this is by far the minor position. However, I believe it does more justice to the text than the majority opinion. It also conforms with our experience that God isn't usually bringing about physical healing by means of prayer, but he is routinely giving us strength, hope, and encouragement in the midst of our challenging times. That that is, it's consistent. It conforms with reality. You can count on it. I want to, let's see, I'll be careful on my time. I do want to talk about oil. Thank you. Prayer and sin. Uh, because it's in the passage, and it's sort of along the same, the, the thought of who... Who needs healing and who's compromised and why and what does that look like? So look at verse 14 again in James 5. It says, anointing him with oil. What does that mean? What do you understand it to mean? How would we do that? What would it look like? So there's two basic Greek words for anoint. One is alepho and one is creo. If we are talking about the Greek language and we're talking, in fact, where does Christ come from? The word creo, christened, christened. It's the same, same root. 
If we're thinking about that, just the, the general way anointing with oil, what might that look like? Well, if it's a creo kind of anointing, if it's a christening, the way that, that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, it has to do with sort of this official, um, anointing might be the best word, but this, this uh, recognition or this setting someone aside for special service. So your study sheet has a couple of examples. You'll see this used in 1 Samuel 16, 13, when David is christened, he's anointed with oil by Samuel the prophet as the next king. You'll see it in Psalm 133, verse 2, of Aaron the high priest. They were both christened with, they were anointed with oil when they were installed in their offices of king and priest. But you also have a non-christening use of anointed with oil having to do with with medical use, basically. You see this in the Good Samaritan story of Luke 10, verse 34. You remember there, the guy's been beaten. He's been physically injured. His skin has been compromised, probably bruises as well. But when the Good Samaritan comes along, the text says that he, he treats the, the skin wounds with oil and bandages. That oil was routinely used medicinally as well, typically you think of for topical injuries. That's in Luke 10. And then also for a non-christening use, it's used for grooming and refreshment. You see this in Luke 7, which I'll look, about, look at here in just a second. So the use in this passage isn't related to anointing for service. It's the wrong Greek term. And it appears very unlikely to have anything to do with medicinal use because that would be restricted, not someone who's sick broadly, even physically. That'd be restricted to the use of something on their skin. You'd use the oil to, I suppose, uh, keep bacteria or infections from the wound. So it looks like it's having to do with this thought of grooming and refreshment. So you're praying for the sick and you're anointing them with oil, but what is the inference? Why, why is that significant? It seems more likely that the use of anointing oil here is tied to refreshment and encouragement. And this is from Daniel Hayden. This is from a theological journal article. Um, he says, related to the use of the Greek terms alepho and creo, he says this, James is not suggesting a ceremonial or ritual anointing as a means of divine healing. Instead, he is referring to the common practice of using oil as a means of bestowing honor, refreshment, and grooming. It was in this sense that the sinful woman anointed Jesus' feet with ointment, Luke 7:38, and that a host would anoint the head of his guest with oil, Luke 7:46. In that story, Jesus is at the home and the meal of a Jewish leader named Simon. And what he points out is, Simon, when I came to your home, you didn't anoint my head with oil. This was common. I, I've come and I've visited your house and you're anointing, you're, the, the lowest slave is washing my feet and you're anointing my head with oil. This was a, a, a common custom. Uh, Jesus also suggested that a person who is fasting should not appear sad and ungroomed, but should anoint his head and wash his face, Matthew 6, 17. You anoint your head with oil. You know, most of us don't slick our hair back with oil today, but that was a the thing. They, they used oil on the hair. This was common. So he points out that the way the, the oil is being used here, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get past this here in just a second, but this, this isn't, they're not being christened for service. It's not medicinal use. It's almost certainly having to do with it was a common way of encouraging, grooming someone else. That was the deal. So look at verse 15. 
and, and hold that thought of anointed with oil. Like how, how big a deal is that? Uh, prayer versus oil. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What brings about the restoration of the one who is sick? Is it oil? It's the prayer of faith. It's the prayer of faith. That's what the text says, and that's also the example of Elijah. It's the prayer of faith. It's not the oil. The oil isn't healing. It's not being used medicinally. It's the prayer of faith. So it's the prayer of faith that saves, restores, raises up the one who is in need. So whatever we make of external treatment, prayer is the linchpin of whatever God does in answer to. It's not oil. It's prayer. Prayer made according to God's word in faith and trust will be answered by the one who made the promise. So again, this gets back to we don't have faith in faith. The prayer of faith is a prayer based on God's word. I have faith, I trust that God will do something because God has said he would do something. Verse 15 again, if he has committed sin, so, so on the oil end, encouragement, not healing, not christening, it, the prayer is what's important here. And then also, this comes up occasionally in Depending on your church background or how long you've been around, you may or may not have seen this. Verse 15, if he has committed sins, and verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, have you ever felt uh, something's, something's happened in my life, uh, it's fallen apart, and uh, I wonder if I'm in sin? You know, or, my, or I'm not healthy, I've, something's fallen on me physically, and I wonder if I'm in sin. And if I don't think that for myself, there might be a good... Christian brother or sister in the faith to come up and say, brother, you might be in sin. I'm only half kidding. You guys missed it, but I'm, I'm half kidding. They would come up to encourage you. Maybe it's your sin. It is possible. I don't think it's the norm, but it's possible, and you see this in Scripture, where sometimes a physical ailment can be the direct result of God intervening in our life because he's getting our attention. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 11 most specifically. This is kind of a strange passage. Paul's talking about the meetings of the church, and he's talking about the church getting together to remember the Lord in his death and resurrection, which we'll do here in just a little bit. And he says, oh, and by the way, verses 29 and 30, some of you are sick. And some of you have fallen asleep. That means some of you have died. Why is that, Paul? Well, it's because you're disrespecting Jesus and you're disrespecting your brothers and sisters in the faith in the way you're, you're taking the Lord's Supper. So this is a little different. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on. But their remembrance of the Lord in the death and resurrection, the elements, the Lord's Supper communion, it was taking place in a big meal setting, the, the love feed. It was a potluck, guys. It was like if we... On a Sunday, we had a potluck. We didn't have the Lord's Supper in this meeting. We, we had it during the potluck. But here's the thing. This is in the text. Some of them, they brought their brown bags. It's Kent Vincent's group. They brought their brown bags after service. They're ready to go. And some, they've got some great delicious wine in their brown bags at church. I don't know how that works. But they've also got their food. And so the text says, some of you are drunk at the Lord's Supper. You drank too much of the wine. And it says, and there's others who've come to this communal setting and they have nothing to eat or drink. And guess what? You don't share anything with them. So here's remembering what God the Son did for us in his death and resurrection. God loves us. And we can't bother 
to either restrain ourselves from overeating or overdrinking, much less to share what we've brought with another person whom Christ died to save. And, and out of that, the apostle for God says, some of you are sick, you're physically ill. And some of you God has taken home. He's ended your life early because he's not putting up with more of this disrespect. There's other reasons. There's other things we could talk about with that text, which we won't go into. James 5.14, you remember Jesus went up to the pool of Bethesda and there's a guy that's been there for a long time and he can't walk. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Well, sure, but I can't get in the water. Jesus heals him. He gets up and he walks. But Jesus comes back to him later and do you remember what he says? He says, hey, don't sin again, lest something worse befall you. Now, we know the guy was sick. He was compromised physically. And Jesus says, be careful, because something worse could befall you in the future if you go back to whatever you're doing or sin anew. So there is a, there's a case to be made that sometimes we're ill physically because of sin. But I think it's the, uh, I think it's the exception, not the norm. If sin is behind the physical malady or the discouragement, whatever that looks like, James says, confess it and be forgiven and healed. Confess it to one another, it says. Now, guys, for most things, I have a, a wicked thought. I have an awful, I, I spoke in anger. I lashed out. I, whatever I did, the normal thing is, right, 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins and God forgives us, right? Wait a I don't go seek you out so I can confess my sin. And we're all part of the priesthood of the new covenant. I don't go find a priest. I don't need a priest. I am a priest and you're a priest. I confess my sin to God. God forgives me. The text is clear. I confessed. God forgave. Okay. What's the deal here? It appears that here's a chronic condition in which someone has been resisting God's will. And so God's been knocking, get, getting their attention through whatever that malady is. And in that case, there's a, it's apparently appropriate that I'm confessing that sin to someone else and in the assurance of the forgiveness that I'm receiving from God by the brothers and sisters in the faith, I, I not only am forgiven, but I have a sense of that forgiveness as well. And that disciplinary work of God is lifted. I've confessed my sin. I, I'm given up. Lord, I'm not opposing you anymore. I've confessed and I'm forgiven and I'm healed of whatever it was that was going on. Uh, if you find that's the case for you, just uh, one caution. Um, <clears throat> if I come to you and I confess my sin to you, I want to confess my sin and not someone else's. So if my sin is tied to someone else, I'm confessing my sin, not theirs. And if I hear someone else's confession, I want to do so with discretion as well. That someone's confessed a sin, this may or may not be something that should be shared more broadly than I heard from that person. So we want to be careful. There's wisdom issues that are needed here as well. So usually we assume that if a physical malady is the direct result of God's judgment or chastening, or it's the natural consequence of a past sin, we'll know it's the case. If you get sick, if the bottom falls out of your life, and you say, Lord, is this some chastening? Are you getting my attention? Do I need to change course or what I'm doing or something? You pray, you ask, God will tell you. And if he doesn't tell you, don't assume you've done some wicked sin that you don't know anything about, okay? It's just, it's life, and it happens. So with all that, Lion and Lamb Church practice. The elders of Lion and Lamb are glad to pray with you, for you, regardless of the need. Mark's been mentioning this repeatedly in the introduction to these services. If you're physically sick, we are glad to meet with you and pray 
for you and ask God to heal you. I'm not saying we don't pray for physical healing. We do. And occasionally, you know what? God does it. It's just not real often. So if you say, I'm sick, and I would just love for you to pray for my healing, we'd be glad to. We'll ask. Because, because we know we're making a petition. Now, this is a different kind of prayer, right? Because I don't know God's will. I, I, don't, I don't know what he wants to do. But we can still talk to God our Father, right? Absolutely. And we can say, Lord, we would love it for you to heal our sister or our brother. And we're asking you. And, and like Jesus on the night he was suffering, we, and we can still say, Lord, and not my will, but your will be done. If we're, if we're asking amiss, Lord, we trust you anyway, okay? So if you need prayer for physical healing, we're your guys. We're glad to join with you in prayer, absolutely. If you're physically, emotionally, spiritually worn out, worn down, discouraged, depressed, anxious, we're glad to pray for you, confident that God will strengthen and encourage and raise you up through that time of prayer. I know it'll happen. We'll pray, and you'll be encouraged, and you'll be healed in that sense, and you'll be raised up in that sense, absolutely. We're glad to pray with you here before or after service. We're glad to pray with you at your home. We prayed with a brother at his home just a few weeks ago, I think. We're glad to pray for you here or there or elsewhere. If you'd like to be anointed with oil, we're glad to anoint you with oil. If you prefer no oil, we're glad to pray without oil. It's kind of like your salad. How do you take it? Do you take oil or dry? Are you on a diet? What does that look like? Because the oil isn't the thing, is it? It's the prayer. The text is clear. It's the prayer. It's coming to God in faith and asking. If you know sin is behind your suffering, we're glad to hear you out with appropriate discretion and pray for your restoration, not only as elders, and I say this both humbly and candidly, but as those who also sin and understand the need for forgiveness and restoration. Uh, none of the elders are going to throw rocks at anybody. The world is filled with trials and suffering, Romans 5 and James 1. Some of those sufferings we simply suffer through, trusting God to sustain us and help us endure. Guys, some of life is just enduring. It's just getting through in faith. It's just getting through. That's okay. That's success. For you to retain your faith in Christ is success. At the end of the day, it's all that matters. Christ and my relationship with him. But oftentimes we lack encouragement, strength, support, and healing simply because we don't ask. Because we don't ask. James 4.2, you have not because you ask not. Now later he'll say, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. So we get it, we can pray not according to God's will. But oftentimes we don't have the encouragement and support God would gladly give us simply because we haven't asked, we haven't prayed, either ourselves or for the prayer of others. Luke eleven nine: ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. So with that, if you'll stand, let's, uh, we're going to read a text here from 1 Thessalonians 5 and the worship team is going to come up. If you have questions on this, we're glad to interact with you on, on any of this. I am and the other elders would be as well, I know. Thanks. Let's read. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you.